This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jammer link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jammer. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code JavaScriptJabber, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 174 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from Pleasant Grove. Amy Knight. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. I want to just uh, quickly mention that I am doing another remote conference on Angular. So if you're interested in that, go to angularremoteconf.com. Call for proposals is open, and early bird tickets are also available until the 25th. So go check it out. We have two special guests this week. We have Forrest Norvell. Yep, that's me. I'm coming at everybody from the outside lands of San Francisco. And Rebecca Turner. Hi there. I'm here from uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Awesome. So rumor is that NPM3 is in danger of coming out or is out? Yeah, well. it is in it's in beta right now. We will get into the whys and the wherefores of why it's not in general release in just a little bit, but we're still working out some remaining blocking issues is the the short version of that story. And we will uh we have a lot of interesting new stuff in it to talk about that mostly my colleague Rebecca will be addressing. I thought I'd start by just talking about why NPM3 exists really briefly. The NPM installer is kind of the core of the product, and it's kind of grown organically over the years and is, you know, kind of, it, it's the, the source of a lot of the issues with people that people have with NPM. Rebecca has a, a good story of how we change it to fix that. But the biggest change that we needed to make was that before the installer was kind of doing stuff as it went. So you'd pull in some packages that needed to install. It would read their package.json files and it'd be like, okay, I need to pull down some more stuff. So it'd be doing this mixture of pulling data off the registry, unpacking tarballs, setting up symbolic links, kind of all at the same time. So there were lots of weird race conditions. There was a lot of stuff going on with 
the basically what we needed was we needed a way to basically build the whole dependency tree and figure out what needed to happen before doing it so that we'd have a better idea of what needed to happen. The biggest feature around this is that before when you run npm install on a previously installed tree, all npm would basically do is look and see if the top level packages looked vaguely plausible according to the package.json file. And they'd be like, whew, all done. I don't have any more work to do. Even if stuff had changed further down the tree or there were other inconsistent, like there were packages missing further down the tree, you'd basically have to blow away your node modules folder and to start over again if it got in an inconsistent state. Uh, there's a bunch more stuff there that kind of came up in the process of reworking things for NPM3, and I'll let, I'll let Rebecca get to that. But the basic motivator was that we wanted something that was more consistent and robust when it came to actually getting the stuff you wanted to be on disk on disk consistently every time. So I'll pass it off to Rebecca now. Yeah, so like Forrest says, the you know the the motivator, you know, from NPM two's giant tangle of execution, NPM three is much more disciplined and it does one thing at a time. We were calling it uh, the multi stage installer for a long time, and the reason for that is because it does it scans your it scans your folder and figures out what out what dependent what you currently have, and then it figures out what it wants you to have. It goes through and resolves all your dependencies without actually installing anything. And then it goes through each install step separately. So, and this is, this is where one of the big wins was, is that previously, you know, we've got, we have like the post install lifecycle that runs after a module installs. And previously that would run, you know, that usually worked, but there was no guarantee that all of your dependencies had completed installing by the time your post-install lifecycle was running. And so if you needed those for that to work, you couldn't rely on it. It, it, was not, it didn't run consistently. And NPM3, because it's running everything in specific order, and because it can do things like sort the order that it's going to run install lifecycles based on dependencies, it can guarantee that unless you have circular dependencies, all of your dependencies will be installed before we run your lifecycles. And so that's opened up. It's a feature that was always there, but it was a feature that wasn't safe to use until we had this. So yeah. can I just uh, clarify really quickly? So essentially what yeah, it's doing please. is it's building a dependency tree and then figuring out the best way to install it and then installing it that way? That's right. I mean, it builds up, it builds up a tree of what you've got, and then it clones that and mutates it based on your pet, the package JSON and, or shrink wrap. And so it produces this this version of what it wants your tree to look like. And then it produces a list of actions to mutate the first tree into the second tree. And then it just runs through those actions in a deterministic order. That's interesting. So that makes it much more predictable, and it's vastly easier to debug now. It can print out state. So, you know, part of the, you know, if you, if you turn on the silly level of debugging, which is the level that we use, you get things like, here's the tree before, and here's the tree after, and here's all the actions we're going to take to change it from one to the other. And uh, so for us, it's made, there, there are whole classes of bugs that before were just immense trial and error that we can now attack methodically. So besides your own debugging, are there user issues that this solves? Well, like I said, the lifecycle ordering is really important because it was like, you know, you could use that until it stopped working for you. And then there was nothing we could do for you before. Okay. So I think that was really important. Interestingly, this building it out is how we ended up with like, you know, we produce a flat tree or a mostly flat tree now. 
And that came out of going, we'd really like to deduplicate our modules when we're building this tree. And it turns out that since we knew we both wanted to have a maximally flat tree and we wanted deduplication, they go really well together. It's actually much easier to do the deduplication if you already have a maximally flat tree. So those, those are the, like, those didn't come out of the multi-stage part of it, but they came out of it, you know, they were, they've been a key part of NPM3 as long as we've been working on it. So to the point of flattening, I've noticed that there are yeah. some people that do bad things, like <laughs> they expose modules as singletons with variables that can change internally. So, and I'm, I'm imagining there aren't too many things out there that depend on these modules, but like passport is one of them and lots of stuff depends on that. Right. Right. Um, what, what do you see happening with stuff like that? Is there going to be breakage or are people going to clean it up? What's going to happen? I mean, that's one of the main reasons that it's in beta is that we want to give people an opportunity to clean these things up. And to reach out to projects that are affected by the changes that this brings. It, the thing is, is that like, um, any module that was relying on that singleton pattern could already break. Because if you ran NPM dedupe, it could produce the same kinds of scenarios that a flat tree can produce. It's just that the flat tree is going to produce them a lot more often. And there are ways of doing a singleton that don't have that problem. So it's, it's actually not a difficult change to introduce into a project like that. So I think they'll get fixed. Well, that touches on another one of the major changes that comes in with NPM3, which is a change that we made after an epically long issue thread about a year and a quarter ago about the ongoing problem of peer dependencies. Peer dependencies were originally envisioned as a way to create a kind of plug-in hosting mechanism, which kind of begs the question of why they were ever called peer dependencies because the name doesn't really describe what they do very well. It's just kind of the enduring mystery that is peer dependencies altogether. But for this, we basically realized that peer dependencies cause the same kind of dependency hell problems that NPM was originally intended to address by allowing each application to have its own package tree. So we made two kind of key decisions, one of which was that peer dependencies will never cause a package to be installed with NPM3 and greater. And it also takes the error message you used to get when you had like an irreconcilable set of peer dependency conflicts because you had, you know, 18 grunt plugins and 16 of them were all mostly compatible, but two of them wanted things that just couldn't be satisfied. It turns that error into a warning and it puts the burden instead of being on the people who just want to use these plugin hosts and their plugins and makes that the problem of the person who is actually maintaining the plugin or the plugin host. So it solves can the plug. Can I stop you real quick? Sure. So, so peer dependencies, what exactly are they? Because you said they're kind of plugins, but... So peer dependencies, the feature is merely a versioning constraint, right? So you say, I am grunt... OptiPNG. So I want to have this thing to fix up the PNG images in my website, and it needs Grunt to run. So the plugin says, I have a peer dependency on Grunt, which is to say, I need Grunt installed in my package tree in order for this plugin to run, right? It's not self-sufficient on its own. And the idea is that you have a whole bunch of these plugins, and they're all like, I need Grunt version 0.4 in order to do my job. And then 
previously what would happen is you didn't need to depend on Grunt directly. It would be like, oh, there's a peer dependency relationship for this plugin, so I need to go ahead and install Grunt at the same level as the plugin. And like I said, that caused problems because you would have a bunch of these plugins and just due to the different ways that people use Semver or things kind of getting out of date, you would get in situations where you as a user would need, you know, let's just say three plugins. And there, the way that the peer dependencies were expressed using Semver meant that there was no way to actually satisfy that constraint. Okay. So again, like the, the, the feature is used so that people can have a bunch of plugins for things like Grunt or Gulp or Karma and the way that it's implemented is it was this version check that also did an implicit install. And because of the fact that, because of the kind of like really awkward combination of having the thing automatically installed sometimes and then also just kind of like grinding to a halt when all of the plugin peer dependency versions didn't match up, then what ended up happening was that you just couldn't do anything about it as a user and you just got stuck. And that created a lot of support problems, not just for us as the NPM team, but also for Grunt and Gulp and the other people who are maintaining all of these plugins. So by changing that to a warning, what we're really saying is two things. One is it makes it easier for you as the person using this stuff to figure out the various Semver conflicts and try to come up with a version of Grunt or whatever that will actually satisfy them. And also, more often than not, the likelihood is that your uh, Semver, the Semver of the plugins is probably overly strict and nothing bad is going to happen if you actually kind of go outside the envelope a little bit here. So you'll still get the warning saying, hey, we can't satisfy this constraint, but the odds are good that you will still be able to run whatever lifecycle scripts or do whatever work you need to do with that system and that plugin and the architecture. Does that make sense? Yeah, so in- essentially instead of saying, I can't give you Grunt version 1, 2, and 3. It now just says, we installed version 3. Some of these say they want version 1, and it might not work. Yeah. And to go back to AJ's original question, when you have this kind of singleton access pattern, quite frequently that's for things like you know, Ember or, or Angular or um, React that actually quite frequently have their own kind of uh, dependency management pattern, you know, either it's they're using something like uh, Babel to transpile or they're using uh, like Angular basically has its own dependency injection pattern that uses globals and doesn't really t- touch on the common JS pattern used by node modules at all. So really the, all you're doing is expressing those constraints between plugins altogether. And I think more often than not, the singular, the, the kind of singleton pattern, even though it's an anti-pattern, will work just as well now that we have this mostly flat tree. And in the cases where it doesn't, the same thing obtains for both peer dependencies and things like the larger ecosystems that are they're using this kind of singleton pattern. What we want to do is we want to find out about that now and see if they can come up with a mitigation strategy on their end or if there's just something that we have to do to, to enable those ecosystems to continue to work without breaking all their users. So one question I had, I know this isn't completely specific to NPM3 that this enabled some of the changes like in NPM2 and stuff, but um, I was going back through the NPM blog and uh, I saw a video linked where one of um, the women was talking about uh, your rewrite process and how initially NPM was just written in vanilla JavaScript and you also did this rewrite process to start using Node. 
And then also, um, I've read that during this rewrite process, it kind of enabled some of these features. So I was curious about that. I'm not quite sure what you mean by the first point. The rewrite changed it structurally, but like the tools that we're using haven't changed. But the architectural changes, changing it to be step-by-step, Probably the best example of this is deduplication, which then in turn led to the max flat trees and because that was the easiest way to implement that. And so that was something that had been sitting around as like Windows would really like to have shorter paths as long paths, you know, beyond 255 characters, Windows can't deal with that. And so that had been sitting around as an issue. And we knew we wanted to address it, but it wasn't a part of the original plan. And it came out as we were working on it that it was just going to be the, you know, the most straightforward way to approach the project. Not sure that I can. Forrest, can you think of anything else that has come out of the architectural changes? Um, Not so much architectural changes, yeah. but we did change our coding style a little bit. To go back to your original question, Amy. NPM is pretty much inextricably tied to the development of Node as a platform. Uh, you know, there's a, a fun story that I think we've told actually on this podcast before that NPM has never actually stood for Node Package Manager. And in fact, it doesn't really stand for Package Manager at all. But the two projects kind of grew up together. So NPM's always been in JavaScript, and it's always been written on top of but not just Node, but kind of the common JS pattern for writing packages. But it is an extremely idiosyncratic code base, and one of the main drivers for doing this rewrite was that it was very difficult to maintain before. So there's kind of two pieces of that. Like Rebecca's put a lot of work into making the, uh, as she as she mentioned, she's put a lot of work into making the code base easier to understand and debug. But we also took that opportunity to solve kind of a major procedural point for the project, which was that code reviews were spending a lot of time focusing on coding style and other things that are, frankly, not a super great use of the team's time. So we made a decision to switch to using the uh, probably at least slightly ironically named standard style checker. So that means that basically we just ensured that all of the code made it through there without raising any issues and then, you know, made that part of our process. Partially this was done to make things easier for the CLI team, which is Rebecca, me, and also Kat Marchand, who's the most recent person to join. But also part of it was kind of this feeling I had that it was easier for people to contribute to the project, which is one of our big priorities, is making it as easy as possible for outsiders to get involved but if they knew what to expect in terms of coding style and coding standards. Architecturally... The most interesting thing to note is I think originally Rebecca and I both thought that this project was probably going to take about two or three months. Uh, that is true. Isaac had some ideas about how the multi-stage installer was supposed to work. I had, had spent some time thinking about what was going to happen. Uh, we very purposefully did not dump all that information on Rebecca because she was fairly new to the company at the time and we wanted to give her an opportunity to figure this project out on her own. And I think we kind of realized along the way that there were a lot of codified assumptions in there and 
there was more to it than we thought. Like the, I think the entire process has been us figuring out that the installer is actually a really complicated thing. And I, I see that, that Amy just dropped a, a link into chat about a presentation that our colleague CJ Silverio, who runs the registry team, did. And that is actually a, a very interesting story. The registry team and the CLI team work more or less independently from each other. The backend work is more or less isolated from what like Rebecca deals with on a day-to-day basis. The only communication layer is an API that is under-documented but well understood that works through a package that NPM uses called NPM Registry Client. So yes, this the registry itself has gone through enormous changes in the last year. In fact, I think basically the entire architecture has now been at least radically modified, if not completely replaced twice. And I am not the best placed person to talk about those changes. But the interesting thing there is that the CLI has had to change very little. And in fact, several of the times when there have been changes made to the CLI, they've either been just to add support for new features on the, the backend, on the registry, uh, or they have been made to deal with the fact that their behavior that we've kind of all come to agree after the fact were more or less regressions. So I think that's actually a, a pretty interesting engineering success for the team that we can be making these huge changes on the back end without having to affect the front end and vice versa. But that is actually how that's gone. Like I have not had to do too much in managing the process to make sure that that we don't step on each other. It's actually been the, the two teams have worked pretty smoothly and more or less independently. Although there's, there is some work that's going on that I'll talk, touch on at the, at the end of the conversation about where we go next with the CLI uh, that, that does impact that. But like, yeah, the work that CJ's done actually has had very little effect on Rebecca's work. One of the interesting things about how the scope of NPM3 changed is it started as, let's rewrite the installer. And it turns out, like when you dig into the deep internals of NPM, it is largely built on itself. So... Any time you change one piece of it internally, it ended up changing a bunch of other things. And so a bunch of other commands got rewritten as part of the installer rewrite. So like the npm shrink wrap command is an entirely new set of code. npm ls had to be changed substantially. npm rm, of course, and anything that modifies the tree, that was obvious from the start. But a lot of these came out of because flattening the tree seemed like the right approach to take. And we knew we needed that for Windows. We went with it. And a lot that impacted NPM, I think, more than it impacted our users. I want to bring up another thing that you mentioned both in the emails that we sent back and forth before the show and today during the show, and that's shrink wrapping. Now, when I use NPM, I generally just, you know, NPM install, magic ensues, I get what I need, and it just goes on. Well, what is shrink wrapping and what changed? So shrink wrapping allows you to lock in a specific version. And um, so your package JSON would continue to have a simver constraint. But the you would have an additional file called npm shrinkwrap.json. And you don't hand edit that file. That file is generated by the npm shrinkwrap command. And that has the exact versions, not only of your dependencies, but all of the things that your dependencies rely on all the way down the tree. And that way you can get a repeatable install. Uh, somebody else running npm install with a shrink wrap file will get what you had. A lot of teams like this for collaboration. Sometimes it's used for distribution. 
The big change with npm3 is that if you have a shrink wrap file and you run npm install dash dash save, it'll update the shrink wrap file. Previously, it would only update your package JSON, which was confusing because the way npm implements shrink wrap, it uses the shrink wrap in preference to the package JSON. So if you did an npm da- install dash dash save, it would add it to package JSON and then that would be ignored for anyone else using your package. So having it update that with dash dash save was important. It also does it when you do update, when you do RM. And another change is you, there's actually npm ddupe dash dash save will now update your, your uh, shrink wrap as well. There's a tiny little elephant in the room, like <laughs> a miniature elephant in the room here, which is that if you're coming from another ecosystem like, oh, I don't know, Rails, uh, this is a feature that you are accustomed to having mm-hmm. out of the box, right? If you were coming out of Rails, you've got a gem file lock file that is created as part of setting up your vendor plugins and the various other components of your Rails app. And Bundler has, you know, kind of got this totally locked down, so to speak. And a lot of people who are either part-time JavaScript developers or are just using NPM for the Rails part of their workflow, like for their asset pipeline, or are, you know, people who are still comfortable with that flow have kind of an expectation of how shrink wrapping should work. And the changes in NPM 3 make it a lot closer to being like that. So you don't need to deal with all the cumbersome, like manual bookkeeping of like nuking your, your shrink wrap file or bringing it back. And it basically ends up working in effect very similarly to how a lock file works with Rails. So, you know, if, if that, if you bring down a dependency either through installation or through cloning it from a Git repo and you run npm install, it just notices that the shrink wrap file is there and makes sure that the exact versions of all those dependencies are installed just the way you want. Uh, that said, you know, the, to, to keep addressing the small elephant in the room, I am, um, determines to let NPM find its own path for this stuff. The The way people use Semver is different in NPM than in the, the Rails community. The way that these tools have developed has been parallel, and there is definitely some convergence happening here, but I think that it's important that we kind of look at the usage patterns. And a lot of people are, are like you, Charles, right? Like a lot of people are just using the, the Semver in their package.json files to determine what gets installed and that's kind of the way NPM was designed to work. So we're, you know, moving towards having it work more the way people expect when they do opt into that feature. But we don't want to, like, say, make it the default or require you to use shrink wrap all the time. Yeah, that said, most of the code I write is Rails, so. Yeah, well, I'm surprised you're not more on top of shrink wrap then. I know. Well, you explained it and I was like, yeah, I like that feature. <laughs> well, it works better in NPM 3, so give it a shot. All right, we'll do. Are there other things that you're putting into NPM3 that are going to change the way that people use it or the way that package uh, authors write stuff? There's one other breaking change, but it's not one that... It's an obscure enough feature that I would be surprised if anyone has heard of it, which is you can uh, lock down what versions of Node your uh, package would be installable through by setting engine strict in your package JSON and then setting engine you know, node 0.12. And it, it's no longer a strict requirement. It now warns if you don't have a matching engine, but it won't refuse to install. The way it was implemented was confusing because it would simply pretend that 
modules that didn't have a matching uh, engine requirement, they would just pretend that those didn't exist. And so if none of them matched, it would be like, yeah, there are no versions released of that module. There's one really important anti-breaking change in NPM 3, which is there's this really common situation, especially on OS X, where if you use the installer that you got from Node.js.org and then later tried to install, upgrade NPM yourself, it would cause, because of the way permissions were set up, if you didn't remember to use sudo, it would uh, make it look like NPM had just deleted itself in the process of trying to upgrade itself. And uh, we fixed that. That doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> we have changed how the permissions check works so that it is now far less likely that you will inadvertently cause NPM to disappear by trying to upgrade it. I know that that probably seems fairly comical that we even have to mention that, but it's something that has been kind of on my personal list of clown shoes, things that needs to change in NPM pretty much since before I got here. NPM, the, the installer does a lot of stuff and it has a lot of special purpose logic for handling things like permissions that is not necessarily immediately obvious to, to users. And so making this change actually did require some architectural changes around how it looked at uh, how and when it looked at the permissions of the places that it was installing to. Uh, if you don't do that correctly, you can basically cause some really strange race conditions that are super unpleasant. So it was actually not a simple fix, which is cold comfort to all the people like, why did it take you so long to fix this? But it's fixed now, so let's accentuate the positive. Well, it seems like, I don't know if that's an open bug in Node, but it seems like they need to fix that there, because I really hate it when it I install a new version of Node or IOJS and it tramples my permissions and user local. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear you. The issue there is... You know, it's not really clear what the expectations are, right? Like those of us who have ever installed homebrew or ports or something similar where they one of the first things that they have you do is change the permissions of user local so that it's owned by or writable by your user, your, you know, your regular user and not a, a root or wheel account. That's not really a POSIXy thing, right? Like the way that Apple's installer frame, like I, 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 I hear what you're saying. If you use a package manager like Nave or NVM, then it doesn't have this issue because it, it sets the permissions up for you correctly. But I'm sure there are at least two or three issues open on this already on both Node and I.O. But we've done what we can to fix it on our end. Well, that's good. Is it worth mentioning anything in the tiny jewels section? I was a little bit... Uh, excited to see about the temp folder because that's been a problem that we've had at work. So yeah, there's, you want to talk about that, Rebecca? There's a bunch of those little features that are pretty interesting. So like the temp folder one was something that came out while I was working on it. And we would have, uh, you know, I'd have my, I was running the installer a lot, of course, while developing this. And I was looking in, you know, and I've run into problems and I'd go look in the temp folder and it's like hundreds of folders there because I don't reboot my laptop. When would I reboot my laptop? You know, only when OS updates require it. So it's not perfect yet, but it does exert a lot more effort to clean up the things that it puts in temp. And like the permissions thing is actually something that the fix came out of the architecture because now it's done as a, there's an install stage before it actually tries to install anything where it checks all of your modules permissions in advance. There's NPM dry run, which is something that people have been asking, that we've had hmm, 
small level of interest in for quite a while. And as another one that turns out probably more useful to the NPM developers than anyone else, but you can pass dash dash dry dash run into npm install or uninstall or any of the other installer related commands and it will go through the entire process and it will print out results as if it installed things without actually ever touching your file system to make changes and uh one of the things that actually started as npm3 and got backported to npm2 was adding more so previously you could you know you've always been able to do a shortcut of organization slash repo to install stuff from GitHub. And so we had this shortcut for installing stuff from GitHub because that's what most people use. One thing that NPM3 brought was making it so that GitHub was no longer the only hosted repository service that NPM knew about. So that made it so that you could do bitbucket colon org slash repo or GitLab colon org slash repo. And this extends out further than just, you know, setting that as your dependency. One of the other things that NPM would do is it would intuit what your issue URL was and what your repo URL was from, you know, what the human visible version of the repo was from these URLs. And it could look at the URL, you know, it would look at the URL for GitHub and it would be able to figure out what, where the issues page was. And now it can do that for GitLab and Bitbucket as well. So I think that covers our tiny jewels. Yeah, I thought some of those were pretty good, worth mentioning. I, I want to talk briefly. We've we've talked about kind of the rewrite that happened. Why not just? I I, I recognize that there's some breaking changes, so you needed to up the version number. But why rewrite instead of uh, sort of rework the the sections of npm? Or did I misunderstand the process that you went through with this? The problem that we ran into is that we were it's a it was such a deep change to the architecture of how npm installs run that there. Like the function that we could swap out was install. Deeper than that, the previous NPM, uh, as Forrest alluded to, had this self-recursive process where it essentially ran the installer at your top level, and it went through and found all your dependencies, and started downloads on all of them. And whenever one of those finished, it would change into that, you know, it would conceptually change into that directory and then run the installer again for that new directory. And it just kept on doing this until everything finished. And this was a straightforward way to write it. But, of course, that meant that everything was happening at once. There was no way to know when things would happen. And it wasn't something that could be like halfway turned into a multi-stage process. It needed to stop calling back into itself. And so that, that was why we approached it as a rewrite. I mean, it was done, it done as a rewrite with the old code next to the new code, copying across logic, business logic where we found it. So it's not like it was, uh, you know, throw that out and forget about it and go back to spec. It was deeply based on the old code. It's worth pointing out that with the exception of some support packages and a whole bunch of new support packages were written as part of this effort, all of this stuff was in one thousand plus line pile of deeply entangled JavaScript. Like it was a, a very thorny, like involuted, hard to understand, crazy thing. And the a lot of the work that Rebecca has done has been to kind of find the architecture that was kind of emergent. It, it wasn't really explicit at all before and turn break that down into a set of components that 
probably eventually we're going to try to extract out into a standalone component. It was an incremental process. This wasn't a traditional ground-up rewrite. Like It was very much like move things from one place to the other. But there was a lot there that basically needed to be pulled down and built up again from very close to the ground. Gotcha. So one final question that I was going to ask about, and I think it sounds like you're interested in talking about it too, is kind of this push that NPM is looking at the front end now because, um, you know, it's kind of been, I think, um, like unwritten where kind of use NPM for our node packages and Bower for our front end packages. Um, but I know a lot of people are moving to NPM for that. So is it more uh, that it's been a goal of NPM all along to look at the space, or is it more like something that's being driven by the community? Both. The impetus for this is definitely a lot of frustration that we see from people around how complicated their front-end tooling flows are. There's uh, a lot of kind of merging standards around some of this stuff that just didn't exist before. And they're not really standards because there's a, a lot of different ways to solve these problems, but there are definitely a, a few conventions. You know, Browserify has gotten a lot of traction. Uh, we're also seeing a lot of people using tooling like Ember CLI and Yeoman and it's kind of moving, in some cases, with Yeoman moving kind of away from using generators and more to just using a pure NPM uh, workflow. It actually turns out that even though NPM's run script support is fairly limited, it's actually adequate to do a lot of front-end tooling flows. And we're also seeing the rise with Browserify of things like Webpack, where people are starting to think more seriously about things like web components and other non-JavaScript assets that they want to be able to manage using a tool like NPM. Particularly with the case of Bower, uh, Bower's a valuable tool. A lot of people are using it. We aren't really interested in you know crushing Bower beneath our iron heels, but we are interested in looking at the features that people really like about Bower and at least making it possible to use them with uh, NPM. So the first steps of that are in NPM three. Like the mostly flat tree is actually good enough for a lot of cases for people using it to build and manage web apps, but it's not the end of the story. We have a roadmap. Uh, I've dropped the link for it into our chat, but you can just go to the NPM wiki on GitHub and you know look for the roadmap, and it's fairly easy to find. Where I'm trying to kind of put into a more structured form kind of our goals as far as making this a better tool for front-end developers. And there's a lot of pieces to this. One of the first ones that we're going to tackle is making it easier to treat packages hosted on GitHub the same as they are in the, as packages on the registry. Bower users, and actually I think a surprisingly large number of NPM users, don't have a really clear understanding of the distinction between like a package that's hosted on GitHub and a package that's been published to the NPM registry. I am actually regularly surprised by the number of people who are themselves surprised by the fact that when you run npm install, it's not just pulling everything down from GitHub. That, in fact, there is a chunk of infrastructure out there that's responsible for handling like 80-some million downloads of package tarballs a day. So that said, like there, a lot of people have workflows where they want to be able to publish something to GitHub. Maybe they, maybe they want to – that's how they work with their contract – customers and they want to make sure that they have you know 
private packages. We have added support for private packages on our own registry. We've also are in the process of updating our organization and team support. But if you're a mostly front-end developer, you aren't going to be publishing that many packages, but you are going to be publishing your front-end work and you want to be able to use that. So we're adding that functionality. Uh, one of the, the most difficult pieces of this, which is probably not going to come this year in its final form, but it will be coming within the next 6 to 12 months, is adding the ability for people to have a separate browser dependencies section of package.json, uh, a place to put your static assets, your browser-only JavaScript, your packages that are just for front-end use. And part of that will also be adding support in some form, which has not been finalized at all yet. In fact, this is that something where I'm still actively looking for input from the community to figure out like how to drive the tooling that you're using. I mean, one thing that I have decided is that we're not interested in picking a winner. So if you're using Webpack or Browserify to deal with your front-end dependencies now, then you should be able to continue to do so going forward. And it's not just those two. Like if you're using Parcelify or Atomify or any way, like a whole bunch of solutions have kind of sprouted up in the space, then there, then you can continue to do so. Uh, and that, that also, of course, extends to, you know, tools like Gulp and, and Grunt and, and Yeoman. But we do want to make a, a smooth transition path out there. We do want to provide affordances to make it easier for you to basically just run an NPM install and have something that has not only whatever backend components you have ready for use, but also has, you know, installed, packaged, and prepared whatever front-end assets you need to serve up for your application. And that is going to be, there's going to be a, a lot of pieces in between now and then, but that, those are the, basically the two biggest pieces of that. Making sure that your, your workflow can move tr- seamlessly from Bower to NPM and also making it much easier for you to use your front end tooling with NPM. Right now, it kind of feels like we're in the middle of a transition of NPM going from being a, a tool for Node developers to being a tool for JavaScript developers. And the front-end work kind of pushes it even a little further than, than that and pushes it to being a tool for web developers, which is ultimately what we would like NPM to be. So I guess the other question I have is, let's say we're using NPM2 in projects currently. How do we transition to NPM3? There shouldn't be anything that you have to do to it other than start using NPM3. If you have an existing install, you can run NPM dedupe and NPM3, and it will give you a, as maximally a flat a tree as it can make from what you had. It's not guaranteed to be exactly what you would have gotten if you had run an NPM install with NPM3 uh, without a node modules folder, because uh, NPM dedupe doesn't install new modules. It just moves around the stuff that you currently have in ways that remain compatible. But uh, yeah, I mean, starting with NPM3 is as easy as installing NPM3 and giving it a try. That's what I was hoping you were going to say. Yeah, another point to make there is installing NPM3 is pretty easy. It's just npm-g install npm at v3 dot x dash latest will get you the most recent but one version the version that's had a week to kind of bake and get some eyes on it and then you can also just do npm dash g update uh npm at v3 dot x dash next if you want to get the absolutely most recently published version and again shake that down we've gotten fantastic feedback from the community i've actually been really gratified by the level of feedback that we've gotten from everybody 
And it's been really helpful, even just the bug reports, like they're very useful. There are definitely still some outstanding issues in that, which is why it is still in beta. The, the, beyond the allowing all the people whose cheese has been moved by the changes to peer dependencies and engine strict, there's also just the fact that periodically, for reasons that we're still analyzing, the installer just kind of goes off to the moon and blows up with a, a range error because of some recursive thing that we haven't quite nailed down yet. Uh, and there's a few other examples like that. But that list is getting shorter over time, and it's largely getting shorter as quickly as it is because of feedback from people who are kicking the tires and checking it out. And the kind of flip side of all that, we're still working out how to get NPM3 packaged with IOJS and Node.js, and we're talking to the new Node LTS project. Like, there's a lot of work going on to kind of converge the the fork back into the the main version of Node, and we're also trying to figure out you know how do we offer long term stable support to users who need a, a more you know a more robust lifecycle management and can't be you know just keeping up with the latest and greatest all the time. And so we are probably well, I I think at this point I actually have committed to supporting npm two for at least another six to 12 months, basically. So what that means in practice is that there are going to be continuing some new features for working with the registry that are going to get rolled out to NPM2 as well as to NPM3. And then, of course, bug fixes and any any security-related issues will be fixed in NPM2 and NPM3 simultaneously, probably for the next year. You, you said that it kind of takes off and goes to the moon sometimes. Is that why it's still in beta? Yeah, it's- that... That plus giving people an opportunity to validate that the change the change to peer dependencies is actually the main reason, aside from the fact that we just made a bunch of architectural changes in the process of sorting out uh, the transition from two to three, which almost certainly means that there are some breaking changes in there. The peer dependencies change is the biggest reason why there's a bump from two to three, and those bits of tooling are in very heavy use. You know, Gulp and Grunt are some of the most popular packages on NPM. And it's very important that we make sure that they are comfortable with the changes. And, and Rebecca, I, I think that you had said that by and large, they've been pretty mellow with these changes. You want to talk about that? Yeah. For a I, well, the community has really been fantastic. I mean, I think that our cautious approach to NPM three with the beta has helped a lot. And, you know, the quality and tone of the issues people have raised have been exceptionally good. So, very happy about all that. And if you, to kind of answer the next question as far as when it will leave beta, that is actually fairly simple to answer. It's when we are confident that the, the list of blockers that we have is either zero or low enough that we are ready to pull the trigger anyway. Uh, that We have a weekly standing meeting where we talk about the state of the build and when we are confident that we have got the things that are actual serious blockers that could cause serious problems for people, you know, running NPM and CI or doing production work with it have been addressed, then at that point we will just change the disk tags. And at that point, when people run their updates, they will get NPM3 and we will start the process of getting NPM3 incorporated into IOJS and Node. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Before we do that, I want to give a quick shout-out to our silver sponsors. This episode is sponsored by TrackJS. Let's face it, errors cost you money. You lose customers, server resources, and time to them. Wouldn't it be nice if someone told you how and when they happened so you could fix them before they cost you big time? 
You may have this on your backend application code, but what about your front-end JavaScript? It's time to check out TrackJS. It tracks errors and usage and helps you find bugs before your customers even report them. Go check them out at trackjs.com slash jsjabber. This episode is sponsored by CodeSchool. CodeSchool is an online learning destination for existing and aspiring developers that teaches through entertaining content. They provide immersive video lessons with in-browser challenges, which means that each course has a unique theme and storyline and feels much more like a game. Whether you've been programming for a long time or have only just begun, CodeSchool has something for everyone. You can master Ruby on Rails or JavaScript, as well as Git, HTML, CSS, and iOS. More than a million people around the world use CodeSchool to improve their development skills by learning or doing. You can sign up at codeschool.com slash javascriptjabber. All right. Amy, you have some picks for us? I do. So my first one is going to be a site called slacklist.info. There are a ton of different Slack channels out there that you can join. Um, This lists some of them. And then you can go on looking for others as well. They'll probably be mentioned in there. Uh, But besides the one that we have at work, I've gone and joined a bunch of them. There's one for, uh, it's called Code Newbie, that is uh, associated with the Code Newbie podcast. There's a bunch of others. So that is my first pick. And then my second two picks, I was kind of getting ready for another podcast. And the other podcast, um, we were talking about performance and then also just kind of this concept of perceived performance. So there's these two different videos at FluentConf. One was uh, the keynote from 2015, and then the other one was one given in 2014. And I just thought both of them uh, really gave kind of an interesting perspective that they kind of covered some different thought processes that we don't usually think about. So those are my other two picks, and that is it for me this week. All right, AJ, you have some picks? I'm going to pick subsistence farming because today is one of those days when I just wish computers didn't exist. (laughs) We all have those days, don't we? I've got a couple of picks. The first one was I was interviewed on a podcast called Developer on Fire and uh, had a great discussion there with uh, David Rail. Um, And so I'm going to pick that. It was was a lot of fun. Uh, The other one is I've been playing with this web page called Elevator Saga. Uh, I'm currently on level four, but anyway, so what it is, is you start off with basically some JavaScript. It's all programmed in the browser and then it gives you like events and things like that for the elevator and the floors. And and then you can uh, program it so that you can handle a certain number of, basically your mission is, is to get uh, like serve. I think the first one's like serve 15 people in, in 60 seconds. And so, your elevators move up and down and let people on and off. And anyway, it's a lot of fun. It's kind of a fun exercise. And so, yeah, so those are my picks. Forrest, what are your picks? I have two picks. One is the Brazilian JavaScript community. On August 22nd, Brazil JS is going to be happening. And among many other talented speakers, my boss, Lori Voss, is going to be speaking there. I've dropped the link to the the conference there, and it's probably a little late to sign up. But in November is going to be the inaugural NodeConf Brazil, where I will be speaking and talking about the current state of the CLI and probably be a much more of a a practical hands-on, here's how to how to use the tool now and how we're thinking about making it work in the future so I can get more feedback from another community because there's a whole lot of JavaScript act- and Node activity going on in Brazil, and it's, sometimes that's not so easy to see. My other pick is uh, 
I came up with, I was thinking about tools that I use with NPM a lot that are maybe not really obvious to people. So I spent a lot of time reproducing issues and a lot of time just trying to quickly sketch out something with some packages. And I need a way to basically create a folder and get the structure in place to just kind of make it work. And to do that, I use the npm init command. And that it will, like, when just used on its own, it will run you through a little wizard that will have you name the project, choose its license, talk about how you run the test command. It basically just prompts you for a bunch of stuff. But if you just want to do something right now, really quickly, you can run npm init-y, and it will generate a, a package.json for you with a package name based on the folder that it's in. And it will even do things like look at any existing node modules and write them into the uh, package.json for you. And it's even got a tiny, not tremendous, but a tiny bit of intelligence to figure out which of those dependencies are, you know, tools that are only used in development and tools that are used into in the actual package itself. And we'll sort them out for you accordingly. So if you haven't ever played around with that, give it a shot. It's a great way to do rapid prototyping, and it's pretty effortless. And you may want to take a look at the documentation to figure out what properties you need to set in your configuration so that it gets the like the right license and your preference for a lot of other things. But give it a shot. Awesome. Uh, Rebecca, what are your picks? I've got a few. So last May, I gave a talk at, the, uh, at my local Ember.js meetup on what was coming with NPM3. So if you want to hear more and see some slides, I have a link to the video of that. My real picks are the Open Source and Feelings Conference is coming up beginning of October, and I, for one, am super excited about it. NPM is sponsoring it, and a bunch of us will be there, so I hope to see lots of people there. Looks fantastic. And like Forrest, um, I have a couple of obscure... NPM commands that I use all the time. And that's the the trio of NPM docs, NPM bugs, and NPM repo. And for a named module, they get you easy access to the documentation, issue tracker, or web view of the Git repository, respectively. And I find myself doing this all the time. If I, you know, if I'm working in a module and I see it's using something and I'm like, okay, yeah, but how does that actually work? I can just run NPM docs in the name of the module. And it opens up my web browser on its documentation page. By default, that's the GitHub README, but for larger projects, it'll, you know, be wherever they've set their homepage to. So, like, that's a thing I use daily. Those are my picks. Awesome. All right. Well, um, if people want to follow the NPM project or anything with uh, what you folks are working on, what should they do? Two things. One is to follow... Me, O-T-H-I-Y-M 23 on Twitter, and Rebecca, who is uh, Rebecca Org, both words just jammed together, no hyphen or underscore, and also our colleague Kat as well. She talks about MPM stuff a lot. She's maybe Z Kat on, uh, on Twitter. Again, no, no punctuation in there. And also, if you want to keep up to date with what's happened in recent changes, it turns out that we have a, a page on GitHub that there's this releases page functionality that I think a lot of projects don't know about, but we make very heavy use of. And you can actually use treat that as an Atom or RSS feed. I'll drop a link to that into, into the show notes. And we also have our roadmap, which I mentioned earlier. That is a good way to keep an idea. We, we always update with that, with what we're working on that week and what our kind of immediate and not so immediate horizons are as an organization. 
So we have a lot of ways to keep track of us, and you should check some of them out, and maybe one of them will be something that gets to be part of your regular workflow. We put a lot of work into making our release notes at least approachable, if not always entertaining or amusing. So give them a shot. All right. Well, thanks very much. I guess we'll wrap up the show, and we'll talk to everyone next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber. And there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. 